I will invite you to open your copy of the Word of God on your phone or in your lap to the book of Titus. Today we are in the book of Titus. We will be in chapter 3, Titus. Chapter 3 is where we will be. And by the way, happy Memorial Day weekend, everybody. Uh, we're certainly thankful here at TCC for all of the sacrifices that the member of our armed forces have made, especially so we can have freedoms like gathering here today as a church. You can't do that in every society, so I'm very thankful we can do it here today. You know, I read the article this week that the U.S. Army is now bringing back a slogan that it had 20 years ago. It's a classic slogan. It's their most successful slogan. Can you remember what it was? Perhaps the U.S. Army slogan is, Be all that you can be. That's what they're going to say. Yeah, be all that you can be. And I read that article, and it took me back to when I was in high school, and that slogan was everywhere, and I was considering a career in the military. I eventually considered against it. But me and my good friend Darren were thinking about going into the armed forces. We both decided it's not for us. And so when we did that, we were still faced with Army recruiters and Marine recruiters and Navy recruiters at our high school. They would see us. They would bombard us with recruiting pitches. So as soon as I decided that I wasn't going to be in the military, I promptly went around to every information booth of the armed services and filled out the paperwork with my friend Darren's name on it. And so we would do this. He did the same to me. There was a section where you could put hobbies and interests, and we would write funny, bogus things on there, and we thought it was so funny. Uh, until one day, I was at home. <laughs> And I get a phone call, ring, ring, I answered it. Phones used to be on the wall like Ron Jur taught us. I answered it and he said, may I speak to Mr. Travis Williams? I was like, yes, this is me. And he said, uh, Mr. Williams, this is Staff Sergeant Jimmy Jones from the United States Army. I understand you're interested in joining up. And as soon as he said that, I knew what was happening. So I was giggling over here. I was ready for it, and he said, oh, Mr. Williams, it seems that uh, you have some interesting hobbies. I was like, oh, no. Seems like you're very interested in painting the toenails of Barbie dolls. Is that true? <laughs> I was like, yes, sir. And he said, you've also requested a special uniform with a target drawn on it. Is that true? Yes, sir. And I wanted to see what he'd say, and he said, well, Mr. Williams, I want you to know in today's army, you can be all that you can be. He was sticking to it. Well, it's a good slogan for a lot of reasons. I thought about it. It really does speak to personal change, development, how you can grow from an adult, uh, from a child into adults. Uh, when I was in high school, the subheading of this slogan was, be all that you can be, get an edge on life. It's meant to prompt you into thinking that if you go to this organization, then you will surely be made into a better person. Well, as we come to our text today in Titus, Paul has a similar idea in mind. It's similar, but it's different. He does want to see you unlock your full spiritual potential. He does want you to flourish. He does want you to mature. 
But the process is a little bit different here. You see, Paul is not saying, here is how you grow. Here's a five-step process. Like in the army, you would uh, join the army, pass your physical, go to basic training. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, he's saying, if you want to live a transformed life, you have to remember what has already been done to you and for you by Jesus Christ. That's the key to living a transformed life. You already have a well of resources within you. You just need to tap into what God has done for you and who God has put in you, which is the Holy Spirit. So today's text is going to be living out of the identities that you already have in Jesus Christ. You can be all that you can be. Or another way of saying it is, you can be who you already are. Paul says you are this way because God has done this for you. And so your call today is to be who you are. So let's unpack that by turning to the scriptures together in Titus 3. Now you might recall, since we're studying through the whole book, You might recall that we were taught that back in chapter 2, the first 10 verses of the book dealt with how to live with your relationships within the church. And now he's going to turn here in chapter 3 to address a couple of challenges. The first one is how should you live among those outside of the church? How should you live, how should you conduct yourself in the relationships that you have outside of the church? Like the students at a local college, they were recently surveyed and they were taught that if someone has a worldview, an ideal spectrum that disagrees with them, that makes them feel unsafe. So if you disagree with them, you feel hurt. Well, how, do we, how do we live with that? Or, or there's a mom from your son's soccer team and she's very verbal about how she hates Christians. She just says it. Or your coworkers are regularly speaking inappropriately around you while you're at work. These are regular problems that we have to deal with when we're interacting with unbelievers outside of the church. All of these scenarios are real. That's the first challenge, but there's a broader challenge embedded here, which is how do I mature as a Christian? How do I live a transformed life? Life. So he's going to begin here in our text today with a contrast between who we are now and then who we were way back before Jesus. Let's look at the contrast here. Verse 1. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, he begins with these words, remind them. You see that? The word remind means they already know this. They've already been told this. In fact, Paul speaks similar things in the book of Romans and 2 Timothy. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter, 2 Peter. We need to remember these things. And that's going to be one of the keys to spiritual growth is remembering what has been done for us. He said, remember to be. That phrase to be is going to pop up. A lot. Four times in just two verses because Christianity is about being. 
Note how he lays out to us a countercultural way of living among those who do not have faith in Jesus, among those outside of the church. Here's what he says. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. That's the government. To be obedient, talking about towards the government. To be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, this list kind of speaks for itself. It's fairly straightforward. What he's trying to do is give us an appropriate target to shoot at. There's mixed messages today in our Christian culture about what it means to live well among outsiders. And Paul wants to make sure you're shooting at the right target. So he gives you some biblical goals here. So in light of the list, I just want to ask you some questions here rather than explain it. He says, be submissive to rulers and authorities. So how about it? How has your heart been lately? Toward the government. You paid taxes in April, hopefully. <laughs> How was your heart? You have to get your vehicle registration renewed. How's the heart with that? Do your kids in your home regularly hear you speak about joyful submission to the government? Or do they hear a different message in your house? How about this? Speak evil of no one. Do you really enjoy criticizing others? Is that kind of a default for you sometimes? First impulse, are you prone to cancel other with your words? Or are you able to speak evil of no one? His other, other point here, avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Here's a question. Who is your model for gentleness in your life? Who is your model? Men, how often do you raise your voices? Women, if you had a choice to be known as a straight shooting, stand up for yourself, speak my mind kind of a woman, or meek, courteous, gentle, which would you choose all of these things he's telling us here are countercultural. We're told to act oppositely by the world. But Paul is giving us a list of traits so that they can adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. The idea here is that gospel advancement is hard enough. The gospel is offensive by itself. If you've ever told someone Look, dude, you're a sinner. You do evil. And if you don't trust in Jesus, you are bound for destruction. That's incredibly offensive. So Paul knows that we have to live a certain way among unbelievers if the gospel is going to have success. So he doesn't want our behaviors to be an obstacle. Let's be counter-cultural. That's, that's who he says we are now. We are these countercultural people. But then he makes a movement and focuses on who we were. In verse 3, the question still on the table here. How do I relate to folks 
who are not followers of Jesus? How do I relate to them? Well, if you're a parent of multiple kids, you'll understand the approach he takes here to teach us how to relate to lost people. Perhaps you have an older child in your house, and you've talked to that child before, and you've, they've said, hey, let's go ride some bikes. Will you ride bikes with me? Sure, sure. Can we take Junior, your little brother? And it's like, oh, no. Pops, he's still in training wheels. He can't keep up with us. Or maybe you're shooting basketball with your son. And your son says, come on, let's play a little bit. now." sure, but can she play, little sister? Ah, oh, dad, she can't even shoot it past her nose, man. What do parents say when this happens? Parents will say, I remember when you too were that size and someone was patient with you. That's the strategy Paul is taking here. He's going to say, remember that you yourself used to be an outsider. You used to be against God. So when you're relating to people who are outside the church, show some compassion. Verse 3 says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's talking about who you are before Jesus at your core. See the contrast between this list and the first one. This list is who you were. Foolish. Disobedient. Deceived. The structure of the passage here tells us that this reality of being slaves to your passions is actually the climax of this list. You were enslaved to sin and Satan. Malice and envy and hate fueled your fire, you were incapable of doing things for God. There's an inability here, and this will come up later in the text. But look at what Paul's saying. As you relate to outsiders, remember who you used to be. Some of us as believers, we don't enjoy thinking about who we were before Christ, because it was messy. Paul's saying, no, 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 wait. It can be a motivation because it's a testimony to the glorious change that God has done in you. And it will give you patience and compassion as you're relating to unbelievers in your life. Remember, Christ had to do something in you to bring you from captivity to liberation in Jesus Christ. And so you're talking to people, don't get frustrated, don't get angry. Don't roll your eyes. Don't be bitter. Don't walk away from them. Christ didn't walk away from you. Instead, remember who you were and push forward in these relationships. So that's the motivation. But then it gets to the heart of the text as we keep traveling here in Titus 3, because we still need help with the power to change, the power to live a transformed life. If you look at that list again, be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work. I need the power to do that. And Paul is going to share with us where that power lies. In other words, he's going to share with us how to be. How can we be people that he's calling us to be in Christ? Now look again at the contrast between verses 1 and 2 and then verse 3. 
God wants you to live with gentleness and courtesy, even though he said you used to be a hater. You were hated by others. You were hating one another. That contrast there highlights the key point of the text. And it's this, simply the same thing that transformed you initially from unbeliever to believer is still going to give you power today. Nothing new that you need to look for. The same thing that transformed you from darkness to light when you were converted is the same power that's going to help you relate in your world today to unbelievers who are going to be against you. Let's face it. Now, beginning in verse 4, he begins a section that he calls a trustworthy saying. What it is is a poem about the gospel. And it's beautiful. And it's a summary of how God saved you. Get the flow of the text. He says, act this way with love towards unbelievers. Remembering you used to be that way too. And now here's the power. Here's what changed you to be a person who can now live in love among unbelievers. He's going to trace five core identities of who you are because what Jesus has done. And then he's going to say, live like who you are. Be who you are. This is who you are in Christ. Now go out in the world and just be that to people. Don't have to put anything else on. Be who you already are in Christ. So let's look at some of these. He's going to say, remember, first off, verse 4, remember you are loved. In Christ, you are loved. Guess, look at what he says here in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now here, he's going to remind us of a God who descended down from the heavens to bless people with his love. This year in the international sports world, uh, there was the World Cup of Soccer. You may have watched some of the World Cup. Argentina won, and their best player, Leo Messi, is one of the most celebrated superstars across the world. Maybe not here, like LeBron, that kind of stuff. But across the world, this guy is huge. And after he won the World Cup, I saw some videos of Leo Messi on the field, and these crazed European and Latin soccer fans would run onto the field just to get near this guy. And usually what it would be, you'd see someone pop the fence, and then he would run a slalom to get past the security people. They're diving around him. And then this guy, usually a teenager, would come up, and he would, right when he got to Messi, he would be kind of held. A security guy would get him. And then oftentimes, Messi was really cool. He would say, uh uh, let's see what the guy wants. So the security guys would back off, and the guy would just want a hug <laughs> from his favorite superstar. Or he would want him to sign his shirt. And I would see Messi, and it felt like he got it. The best thing he can give to this needy person is himself. The most loving thing he could do is for a moment, be with him. That's the idea that Paul is saying. You are loved by God. He has descended. The best thing he can give to you is himself in Jesus. Very benevolent towards us. 
Also, don't miss this. There's a little word play in this verse here that's hard to see in English, but it's there in the original language. The word for kindness, he said the loving kindness of God appears, is actually Christotes. Christotes. You hear the Christ, Christos, Christ? Paul is saying the loving kindness of God, which is Jesus personified, has come to us. That's the Father's expression of love for us. It is Jesus. He came. And he came to be with you. Paul opened the entire book of Romans by saying, I want to write to all the people in Rome who are loved by God. His very appearance shows that he loves you. Now, let's take this reality that we are loved by God and let's build upon it. Let's consider how being loved by God can shape us. How we can be who we are. Might be helpful sometimes. By way of analogy, let's consider human love for a second. Let's consider how being loved by a spouse can shape you. All right? Here's what one husband wrote. One husband wrote this about how his love of his wife transformed him. He says, Now, I don't worry about my wife breaking our marriage vows and commitment because I'm relying on her love for me to keep her faithful. I don't worry about whether the children have been cared for because I trust her love to care for the people and things that I care for. I don't doubt that in her arms I'll find comfort and consolidation when I'm hurting because I know she loves me. And she's there for me. When I put the key in the door and come inside the home, I know she's going to be there and not have abandoned me because I'm relying on her love for me. This week I had a cold. And like most husbands, I was a real baby about it. I was whining to my wife, I think. Uh, And then she surprised me by bringing home a dark berry smoothie. All right? It's one of those things with all the natural herbs and voodoo inside of it. And, you know, I didn't expect it. And it dawned on me, she's caring for me based on her love for me. That's what I'm feeling right now. And I can be secure in that because of my smoothie, right? How much more so can we be transformed If we count on the love of Christ for us. Knowing that Christ loves you can free you to admit that you're wrong. We're scared to admit we're wrong because we think the other person might not like us anymore. Christ's love frees us from that to apologize. It allows you to speak boldly when you need to and risk rejection. So what if they reject me? The love of Christ keeps me Secure. Christ's love lets you let go of material possessions because his enduring love will last longer and forever. Christ's love can shape and transform who you are among unbelievers. You just have to be who you are. You have to be who you are. So let's resolve today. Live like you are loved by Jesus. Second thing he goes into here, second identity, 
Remember, in Christ, you are saved. Why would he bring that up? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. That's verse 4. Now, when we look at salvation in the New Testament, it can be confusing because sometimes he's talking about future salvation that hasn't happened yet. Like, the devil is still tempting me right now, but in the future I'll be saved from that. Right? My body is still wasting away right now and aging, aching. But in the future, I'll be saved from that when Jesus comes back and all is glorified in God's humanity but here, he's not talking about the future salvation as much as what has already happened in the past. He's using past tense. God saved us. There's a lot that goes into that, but I want to focus on forgiveness of sins here for a moment. We learn throughout the Bible that people rebel and sin do evil against God himself and against others. God does not give up on us. He sent Jesus to cancel our debt that we had against him. Jesus does that fully. He pays your debt in full so that he can forgive you of your sin. So that now we're able to stand forgiven and say we are saved from having to pay this future debt of death to God because of our sin. We are saved from that. Paul wants you to remember that this week. As you go in your neighborhood, as you go back to work, as you grill out and everybody else is grilling out tomorrow and you see people, he wants you to remember that your sins have been forgiven. So how do you live like a forgiven person? How can you be who you are when it comes to forgiveness of sins? Well, again, analogies are helpful. As the pinnacle of all holidays approaches, Father's Day, I have been tempted to think back upon my own adolescence and my own relationship to my father. And I thought back recently to a time when I was in high school and I was working and we worked by doing lawn care for people. And because we couldn't afford a trailer, we would ride our riding lawnmower up onto the back of a pickup truck, tie it off and just go mow yards. Well, to get it up there and to get it off of the pickup truck, you had to back up against a hill. In Tennessee, there are a lot of hills. And so one day we were doing our normal unloading at my house. We back the pickup truck up. You back it into a ditch so that it will hit the hill perfectly. And you can just roll the mower right off. We put a couple boards down there, rolled the mower off. I was on it. My brother's in the truck. I got off of it, grabbed the gas can, and then my brother pulled the truck up so the mower's on a hill, which is fine if you don't leave it in neutral, which is what I did. <laughs> so I'm holding the gas can, and boom, he drives the truck off. It goes down the hill, ramps my driveway, hits some concrete, really gets going, ramps off my driveway, through my neighbor's fence, into his horse yard, the pony scatter, and it just keeps going until it hits the other fence. And I'm 16. I'm watching it all. It's, in a way, it's beautiful. <laughs> Aha! Then I feel I have to go tell my father about it. 
So I go inside, long story short, he was so cool about that moment. He forgave me, it seemed, instantly. I was blown away. And I'm thinking, oh, well, there's, I got to pay him back for all this. I got to talk to the neighbor. I got to knock on his door. I gotta... Dad takes care of it. How much do you think that's going to shape how I parent my kids today? I'm not going to be perfect in my forgiveness of my kids, but that is always going to be present in my mind. Why? Because forgiven people forgive people, right? It's just like our t-shirts here. Forgiven people forgive people, and that's who you are in Jesus Christ. You stand forgiven so you can live among outsiders in our community as someone who is forgiven. You can show grace when people wrong you. It's possible. Leads us to the question, who in your life needs your forgiveness today? Who in your life would be blown away if you spoke the words to them, I forgive you. I forgive you. Not in a condemning way, not in a superior way. In a, I'm forgiven too by Jesus, so of course I will forgive you. Who needs that? Are you secure enough in Christ to offer forgiveness to another person? Say, well, you don't know what those people did to me. <laughs> no, you're right, I don't. But I do know what Paul says. He says, you were once foolish. You were once disobedient. You were once led astray, slaves to your various passions, passing your days in malice and envy. You once hated others, and yet God forgave you in Jesus. You can display the glory of God by forgiving others the way Jesus forgave you. Third, identity. Remember, in Christ, you are justified. What does that mean? Justified, Bible word. Look at verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but instead, according to his own mercy. Man, this is crucial. Paul is saying, in case I've been fuzzy up to this point, let me be clear on this one point. God does not receive you in Christ because of any good thing you have done. You haven't done something holy enough to make yourself acceptable to God. You haven't done something righteous enough. What does that word righteous mean anyway? Well, one author puts it, author puts it like this. Righteousness or being righteous is the unswerving faithfulness to always preserve and display the glory of God's name. Oh, is that what we always do? No. Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 4.2. Righteousness is live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. None of us can do this because of what we've already seen back in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul said, you're enslaved. Before Christ, you're enslaved by your evil passions. You're captivated. You have inability. So understand this. There was nothing that you did that was holy enough to make yourself 
acceptable to God. Justification means that you stand acceptable to God. And Paul is saying, you didn't do anything to stand accepted before a holy God. Which brings us to the question, why then did we get accepted? Right? Paul says, there's no way you can do anything holy, and yet there's a holy God. How do we bridge the gap? How do we stand holy before him? He explains in verse 5, it's simply God's mercy. Verse 7, he says, justified by his grace. What's that mean? God hold back the punishment we deserve and he declares you holy. He declares you righteous. He declares you someone who always does God's will. He declares you someone who is faithful to preserve the glory of God. He does this on the basis of Christ's death. Not because you did anything righteous. Christ did something righteous for you and his righteousness was exchanged with your sin. We call that the great exchange. It's a pretty good deal for you. You get the righteousness of Christ. Jesus had all of your unrighteousness piled on him and God accepted the sacrifice and says, now I see you, I declare you as righteous. So we can stand innocent before God, the holy judge. So you've been declared righteous. Where's Paul going? That's who you are. So how do you live like a justified person? How do you be who you are knowing that you are righteous before God? Well, one area that helps us, one area we can apply this in a helpful way, is our own self-condemnation. All right? Lots of us live flowing out of a sense of self-condemnation because of something bad we have done. I want to share two quotes here from the same article I just read that might be helpful. The first one is from a guy named Eugene Peterson. He's a pastor, and he's addressing the fact that when we sin, as Christians, Satan will tell us lies. He'll remind us of that sin. And Peterson writes, these lies are actually impeccably factual. They contain no errors. They are not distortions of falsified data. But they're lies all the same because they claim to tell us who we are and omit everything about our origin in God and our destiny in God. So when Satan reminds you of your sin, you're greedy right then. You lied. You're lustful. He's right. You were. <laughs> That's not the lie. The lie is that we are not secure in the justification done on our behalf in the work of Jesus Christ. Another author writes this. Sarah Hauser says, it's a long one, but it's good. There may be truth in Satan's accusation, but he conveniently leaves out the reality of our redemption. When we know and believe we've been redeemed by Christ who took on himself all condemnation, we're free to grieve our sin without fear and have holy sorrow for our failures. We know the grace of God, but we don't abuse it by continuing to live in sin. That would be like wearing an outfit covered in sewage when God has given us new clothes. Trusting in the righteousness of Christ on your behalf 
is not to say, well, I'm going to keep on sinning. That's not what he's saying. Instead, we live as if we have been declared righteous by God. She goes on to say, I don't know what words of condemnation nag at you. I don't know your story of failure. Maybe there's a moment you let somebody down. A day you felt like the worst parent on the planet. A constant feeling of guilt that you carry. But I do know this. We can be free from the burden of condemnation because no failure is too much for the grace of God. That's what justification means. No failure is too much for the grace of God. You are justified. So you can be who you are by stepping outside of your own self-centered self-condemnation which belittles the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. You can go forward among lost people under no condemnation, standing justified. Fourth reality we see here. You are renewed. You have been reborn. The very end of verse 5 reminds us of how deeply Trinitarian our rescue is. All three persons of the Godhead are mentioned here, cooperating in the sweet salvation. End of verse 5 says, by the washing of regeneration, that's rebirth, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, the Father, poured out for us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're reminded here that the Holy Spirit washes us clean. Amen. At conversion, you experience a rebirth and a transformation. You become a part of Christ's new creation project where he's sweeping across all the cosmos and beginning to change. And by his spirit, you are a part of that change. Paul says you are a new creation. Now part of that is the spirit comes to you and opens your eyes to Christ as treasure. The Spirit has shown you just how beautiful Jesus is. Last night at bedtime, right before my daughter went to bed, Shiloh, she's in middle school, she always asks great questions. Last night it was very simple yet very profound. She looked at me and she said, why doesn't everybody believe in Jesus? God could have done it that way, right? I said, well, that's a long answer. (laughs) Not sure I know it all, but I do know this. Here's the reason I believe in Jesus. It was revealed to me. The Spirit came to me. Took the blinders off. He showed me how fabulous Jesus is and the work that he's done. And so if you meet somebody who's not a believer, the Spirit has yet to open their eyes. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, remember, you were transformed. The Spirit came, gave you this phenomenal rebirth. The Old Testament background for this is very robust. Ezekiel 36 is in view here. You remember that? It involves God looking out on his people in Ezekiel 36. 
And they have turned against him. They have rebelled. They have defiled his name. So what's the holy God going to do? He's going to change them. He speaks a promise when they deserve to perish. He speaks a promise. His promise is, I'm going to transform you. Listen to what he says. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Look for the washing language here. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statues. And be careful to obey my rules. When you came to Christ, you were reborn by the Holy Spirit. And he transformed you. Paul's saying, if you're going to live a successful, transformed life among lost people, you have to remember this renewal that's already happened within yourself. How do we live like it? Paul says, the fact is, you've been renewed. Now, how do we live like it? This week at my house, I discovered that the pet containment system in my yard was broken. So we have a dog, and he lives out in the backyard. And we have an underground fence. It's a containment system. He, he wears a little containment collar. And if he goes near that fence, it will rattle, and he'll come back. He won't leave the yard. This, this week, I noticed it was broken. So I took the rattling collar, and I approached the wire, and it did not rattle supposed to rattle. It's not rattling. So I say to myself, because it's happened before, there must be a break in the line. Sometimes the dog will chew it. Sometimes a stick will fall on it. Sometimes it will just wear out. I need wire 2.0. And I'm thinking, all right, I've got to find it. This is going to take a while. I've got to replace the wire. And then I remembered the power doesn't really come from the wire. I went back inside and I checked the transformer. That's where the power comes for it. And it was dead. I think it was zapped by that big storm that we had. So I called up my friends at Amazon. The next morning, I got one. I replaced it. It was actually good news that the power didn't come from the wire itself. Paul is telling you today, it is very, very good news. If you're trying to live a Christian life and transform, it's very good news. The power does not come from you. The power comes from the Holy Spirit. What does that do? That gives you confidence. Oh, I can't love my neighbor. That guy, ooh, can't love him. Did you hear what she said about me? The way she looked at me? God's asking you to tap into what's already inside of you. Rely on the Spirit. He was strong enough to change you in the first place. Remember who you were before conversion? You probably wouldn't like that person now. That same powerful Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is in you. He can empower you to live a transformed life. Uh, we're talking about this verse in my community group a couple weeks ago. We sit around it, talk it up. They write my sermon for me. <laughs> One guy in the group, he says, this submission stuff is really hard to the government because submission kind of means a heart posture. Obedience is one thing, but submission kind of means my heart has to melt a little bit. 
And I think he's right. It is really hard, but the good news is we have a melting spirit in us, right? Let's trust that the spirit can empower you to go forward this week in your relationships with lost people. Number five, Paul wants you to know today, remember in Christ you are adopted. You are adopted. Look at verse seven. He's going to wrap it up. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So once you're justified, once you're saved, once you're renewed, you're adopted into God's family. I get this adopted language because he's using the word heirs here. It's like in Galatians 4, 7. It's a very interesting verse. Paul says, you are no longer a slave. Now you are, what do you think he would say? A free person, right? You're not a slave. You're a free person. That's not what he says. You're no longer a slave, but you are God's child. Opposite of slavery is being in God's family. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Someone with an inheritance. In the Old Testament, the inheritance language is used when portions of the promised land are being divided up as God's people are going in. The 12 tribes are being given their portions, right? Likewise, God is pointing you today to remember that you have a portion, except it's not the land of Canaan that limited way. It's the new heavens and the new earth. And it's with Jesus forever. That's your inheritance. You're an heir to that because you are adopted. So that when you die, you won't stay dead. You'll go home to your family. Father is there. Spirit is there. The Son of God is there. Jesus. And you inherit life with them in a spectacular way in a renewed universe. So you're adopted, heir to a new heavens and earth. How can you use that? How can you be who you are? Paul is saying, this is who you are. You're adopted. Now, when you go into the world, live like you're adopted. How can we do that? Well, for me, I remember my adoption the most in a very intimate way when I feel rejected. When I feel rejected, the discipline I use is to think about how I adopted into God's family. Think about what rejection does. Think about the language rejection speaks. She does not accept you or care for you. He does not like you. You are not in the community you want to be in. <laughs> That's the language of rejection. But counter that with the reality that you are in God's forever family. That's fortifying, isn't it? It's strengthening. It's empowering to resolve to remember, I'm in God's family. Your words, they'll hurt, but they don't have to knock me off stride. I'm still running with a prize, which is my inheritance. Being with Jesus forever. You can't change that. Thinking like this 
will also change the way you view your material things. I'm tempted to think my inheritance is whatever I make of my money and where I invest it, and then it comes back to me in material things, new shoes, nice house, a seventh car. That's not what your inheritance is. Your inheritance is with Jesus, and it's totally secure. It cannot be taken away from you because you are adopted. Man, I hope you get the point of this text today. The point of this text today is live like who you are. Be who you are. God has done this for you in Jesus. Now live out of that. He saved you. He's adopted you. He justified you. He's renewed you. All of these things frame how we will go and live a transformed life. And I pray that the Spirit empowers you to do it today. Let's pray. Oh God, we say yes to this word from your Bible today. Your scriptures have reminded us of the miraculous work you did when you brought us from darkness to light in Jesus. Everything changed. God, you saved us. Our identities have changed. You loved us. We stand today, if all else fails, we stand loved by Jesus. It's Memorial Day weekend. We might be with family. They might upset us. That won't change your love for us in Christ. God, recall this to our memories often that we might rely on Jesus and his work and the power of the Holy Spirit in us as we go to live our lives. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.